I would invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Holy Scriptures to the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter number 10 this morning, as we conclude our summer series on spiritual warfare. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It was missionary Paul who planted the church in Corinth, and then it was Pastor Paul who then shepherded the church in Corinth for a year and a half. You can read about it in Acts chapter 18. But when Paul left Corinth to minister elsewhere, problems surfaced. And so Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians, an epistle to them to confront and correct those problems. We don't have that letter, but we know of that letter because in 1 Corinthians 5, verse number 9, Paul mentioned a previous letter that he had written to them. Unfortunately, after sending that first or that previous letter, Paul received reports of more problems in the church of Corinth, according to 1 Corinthians 1 verse 11, and he received correspondence from the church that detailed some of those problems, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1. So he wrote a second epistle to them, a second letter to the Corinthians, and we know that letter as 1 Corinthians. But if it's hard to believe, once again, even more problems surfaced. False teachers invaded the church and they assaulted Paul's character and his credentials as an apostle. There were others who even questioned the truth of the gospel. So Paul wrote them another letter. Like the first letter, this third letter, we don't have preserved for us in the canon of Scripture, but we know about it because it's mentioned in 2 Corinthians 2 verses 3 and 4. It's known as the severe letter. And then finally... In expectation of the Corinthians' repentance toward God and their right response toward Paul, he wrote a fourth epistle or letter. We know that as 2 Corinthians. Are you thoroughly confused now? It goes like this. In tracking Paul's correspondence to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians we don't have. 2 Corinthians we call 1 Corinthians. 3 Corinthians we don't have. 4 Corinthians we call 2 Corinthians. (laughs) And so what you have open before you this morning, what we know of as 2 Corinthians, is in fact at least the fourth letter that Paul wrote to this church. And in all of his correspondence with the Corinthians, Paul addressed problems. The Corinthians had people problems. The Corinthians had theological problems. The Corinthians had moral problems. In fact, the Corinthian church has a reputation as being a problem church. And so it is that in 2 Corinthians 10 now, Paul pointed to the problem behind their problems. And he describes it as a matter of spiritual warfare in chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. And folks, we we all have problems, and we know we have problems because we can see them. I see your problems, and you see my problems, but there is an unseen spiritual war that is raging all around us and it has at its roots the source of those problems is that spiritual warfare so i've written there at the top of your notes how do we fight the unseen battles how do we fight and win the unseen battles of corruption and conflict that are that are behind the problems of our lives And here I've prepared a message from 2 Corinthians 10 titled, Secrets of Spiritual Warfare. Let me pause briefly for prayer, and then we'll look at the scripture together. God in heaven, we confess that we have problems. Lord, individually, 
as families, as a church, certainly, Lord, as a, as a nation. There are problems all around us. But God, this summer, we've become quite aware that the problem behind the problems are, in fact, spiritual conflict and battle and war that's, that's happening. We pray, Lord, that you would give us victory in the unseen spiritual battles that we face on a daily basis. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 1. It's before you there. It says, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you. Stop there. Is this Paul wielding his apostolic authority before the Corinthians? Is he saying, do you know who I am? I'm the apostle Paul, that's who I am. I'm the one who has direct revelation from Jesus Christ. I'm the one who is over you in the Lord. It would be as if I said to my son, to my son, do you know who I am? I'm your father, that's who I am. I brought you into this world, I can take you out of this world, right? I'm your father. Is that what Paul's saying? No, absolutely not. But rather... Quite the opposite. Look at verse number one again. Now, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. Paul is appealing to these people by the very character of our Lord Jesus Christ. Number one in your notes, in spiritual warfare, we must be like Christ. We must be Christ-like. Number one. Now we could go to the English dictionary to identify these English words, meekness and gentleness in verse number one. Or we could go to a Greek lexicon to understand the Greek terms behind these words. But never mind the dictionary definitions. Paul associates the characteristics, um, these characteristics with Jesus Christ. And so better than a definition of these terms is a demonstration of these terms in the life of Christ, in the person of Christ. No one had greater power under control than Jesus. That's meekness. No one had greater authority yet used it so lovingly than Jesus. That's gentleness. Our example is Jesus. The Apostle Peter illustrated it this way in 1 Peter 2. He says, For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, maybe a physical problem, material problem, but a spiritual problem behind the scenes, spiritual warfare, for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? You ought to. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. You are suffering injustice, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. You see, Jesus committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he committed himself to, to the one who judges righteously. And so the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, illustrated here by Peter, is the tone of the Apostle Paul's appeal to the Corinthians regarding their problems. And nonetheless, Paul's antagonists would charge him with being lowly or being weak when Paul was with them or bold or aggressive when Paul was away from them. You see it there in verse number 1. But if you jump ahead to verse number 10 as well, for his letters, they say, first, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 10, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak his speech is contemptible. 
And in one sense, this is very true. In fact, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians to these same people. He said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the, the power of God. And so a very, in a very real sense, Paul was weak among them. He was gentle. He was meek among them. But what they considered a vice, Paul declared to be a virtue, for that was the spirit of Christ in him. And folks, when we face problems, when we're engaged in conflict, we don't need to attack like the proverbial bull in a china shop as a show of strength, but rather we need to demonstrate Christ's likeness, the character of Jesus Christ, his meekness, and his gentleness. This is how we go to war. Now, lest you think of this as, anti, as kind of an antithetical thing, a weakness going to war, you think the character of Christ in verse number one is, is weakness. Look at verse number two. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So, number one, we must be Christ-like. Secondly, we must be confident. In spiritual warfare, the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, number one, but secondly, also this matter of, of confidence. Now, consider the battles that the Apostle Paul faced in his life as an apostle. He faced mobs and beatings and shipwrecks and riots and plots on his life. Yet Paul fearlessly proclaimed the gospel before religious leaders. Acts 23. Paul boldly, with confidence, declared the gospel before the emperor. Acts 25. He confronted those who proclaimed false doctrine in Acts 15. He did not shrink away from declaring the whole counsel of God in Acts 20. So while Paul was meek and gentle... He was also bold and courageous. In fact, when Paul first went to the, to the city of Corinth in Acts 18, the Bible says, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Praise the Lord for that. That's the establishment of this church. Now, the Lord spoke to Paul in the night vision, in the night by a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. And he, that's Paul there, continued for a year and six months, a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. And so the Lord strengthened Paul with confidence to speak the truth and proclaim the gospel. And yet after a year and a half of personal ministry among them, after no less than four letters that he wrote to the Corinthians, some of them accused him of walking according to the flesh. Do you see it there at the end of verse number 2? They were critical of him. And they charged Paul with, with operating by human desires, being driven by selfish ambition and personal agendas. They suggested that the Apostle Paul was perhaps pursuing his own increase as an apostle. And that would have rattled the Apostle Paul. When your motives are questioned or your work is criticized, you get hurt, you get rattled, maybe insecure. But with confidence... Paul defended his ministry. Follow me. Go back to chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter number 1, and, and follow Paul's confident defense 
of his ministry. Chapter 1, verse number 12. He says, our boasting is this. Chapter 1, verse 12. The testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly towards you. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 17. For we are not as so many peddling the word of God for increase, but as from God we speak in the sight of God in Christ with sincerity there, verse 17. We'll get to chapter 4, verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 2. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We'll get ahead to chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 2. Open your hearts to us. Paul is pleading with these believers. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. Paul is confident in his ministry because Paul had a clear conscience and a clear mission, and he knew his motives and his message were right so he could confront the problems in the Corinthian church. One last place, chapter 13. The end of the letter, chapter 13. And look there at... um, Verse number 10, therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. He's being careful to be bold in his writing to them. Many times, I think we're impotent as soldiers of the cross to fight spiritual battles in our lives because we're uncertain, we're insecure regarding what we've done or what we need to do or or what the truth is. You say, yes, pastor, that's the problem. The problem is I'm not an apostle, right? I've never received direct revelation from the Lord, and, and so I'm not confident in addressing these issues. Okay, where do we find the confidence to respond in the face of conflict or corruption or criticism or crisis? How do we have the character of Christ, this meekness and this gentleness, but yet this holy boldness in this surety of what is right and true? I want you to hold that thought for for a moment. Hold that intention because we'll answer that question in in just a few moments. But back to chapter 10, verse number 3. For though we walk... In the flesh. Stop there. Do we live in the flesh? Yes. We live in the flesh. And in this very letter, Paul, in fact, declared himself to be nothing but a clay pot. He told the Corinthians that he was an earthly tent. His outer man was decaying. And so we too are physical beings with feelings and emotions and actions and reactions. Verse number three, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. I would offer you number three, in spiritual warfare, we must not be carnal. We must be Christ-like. We must evidence the character of Christ, specifically gentleness and meekness. In spiritual warfare, we must be confident. There is a degree of courage and boldness that we must have. But then we must not be carnal, number three. 
And the battles that we experience in the flesh, they're they're not fleshly battles. They're not physical battles or conflicts. So, for example, the issues of gossip and slander, they're not social issues. They are spiritual issues. The matters of sin and selfishness, they're not physical issues, but spiritual issues. The issues of obedience and disobedience, it's not material, it's spiritual. The issues of of public and personal relationships are, are not political, but spiritual. And when the consequences of corruption and conflict manifest themselves in physical ways, we're attempted to cure them in physical ways or address them in physical ways or battle them in physical ways. And I'm as guilty as much as anybody else. But the cure cannot be carnal or physical because the, the conflict is not carnal or physical. It's spiritual. We don't war according to the flesh, is what he says there. And our weapons are not fleshly or Physical, Of course, this is what we've learned all summer from Ephesians chapter 6. What did Paul write to the Ephesians? He says flesh and blood. We don't battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And so, folks, the daily battles that we struggle with, corruption and conflict and such, know that we cannot Declare war in the flesh, for it is spiritual warfare. And if our warfare is not to be carnal or physical, then how do we fight an unseen spiritual war? It's really been the burden of all of our discussion this summer. How do we fight that abstract, unseen spiritual war? Verse number four. The weapons of our warfare are not not carnal, but mighty in God. The word there, dunatus, it means powerful. It means capable. In spiritual warfare, we must be capable, standing strong in the power of his might. Verse number five, we'll we'll expand this here, um, and, and we'll get to that in just a moment, but... Have you ever considered the capability of elite soldiers? We, we know them as special forces. Of course, we think of the Navy SEALs uh, first and, and foremost. The, the, word, or the, the Navy SEALs, the, the acronym for SEAL, perhaps you know this. It stands for Sea, Air, and Land. And before qualifying to train as a Navy SEAL before the program even begins, you must complete all of the following in less than an hour. Listen to this. You must swim 500 yards, breast or side stroke, in less than 12 minutes, 30 seconds. You must do 42 push-ups in two minutes, 50 sit-ups in two minutes, six pull-ups, run one and a half miles in boots in 11 minutes and 30 seconds. I actually think I could do that. (laughs) No, I think I could do that. But that's just to qualify to get into the program to be a Navy SEAL. You ready for this? Once you make it into the program, candidates must survive the SEAL's brutal 26-week endurance test. 
which is referred to many as the toughest military training in the world. Candidates must be male in the Navy and no older than 28. They must score high on written and physical fitness tests. All right, here it is, phase one of Navy SEAL training. Phase one of the 26 training, uh, 26 week training is an eight week program of running, swimming, calisthenics, and trips around the obstacle course. The program grows more difficult as the weeks progress. The obstacle course resembles a gigantic sandbox with lots of equipment, including telephone poles of various sizes to run across, nets and 25 foot walls to scale, barbed wire to crawl under. The swimming requirements include one and two mile swims in the ocean. The drill instructors increase the intensity daily, pushing trainees to improve their time in the water while avoiding hypothermia. Men inevitably drop out, are removed because of injuries, or give a signal that they can no longer endure the training. By the time all the phases are complete, that was phase one, only 28 out of 100 candidates will have lasted. This is because as exhausting and demanding as this training is, those who last must still endure the final week of phase one, a week they call hell week. Hell week starts just before midnight with an instructor waking trainees with the sound of shots from a machine gun. The trainees then begin five and a half days of constant physical exertion, including more running, swimming, and boat drills. During this week, the focus is on teamwork. Teams of trainees are required to lift and maneuver logs weighing 400 to 600 pounds. Working as a team, they have to hold the logs overhead and do sit-ups with the logs on their chests. Also, they must endure surf torture, where as a team they must link arms and everyone must remain in frigid ocean water until their instructor tells them to get out mere moments before serious hypothermia sets in. While trying to endure this week, trainees consume about 7,000 calories a day and they still lose weight. How about that? (laughs) They get a maximum of four hours of sleep for the entire week. This is the utmost test of physical and mental toughness. It's not unusual for trainees to start to hallucinate after about four days. Hell Week survivors go on to phase two, which lasts seven weeks, which focuses on diving operations. Physical training continues, and trainees are expected to lower their times for the four-mile run, obstacle course, and various swims. Phase three is land warfare, which lasts for 10 weeks. Physical training peaks there, and trainees must complete, among other things, a four-mile run in boots within 30 minutes, as well as a two-mile ocean swim in 75 minutes. The final week of the 26-week training only further prepares them for additional training. Folks, I, I could go on and on. It's a fascinating read. Why do special forces like the Navy SEALs train in this way? So that they might have the ability and the capability to face the difficult circumstances of war. And whether it's the Navy SEALs or the Green Beret or the Army Rangers, all of our special ops, they are physically capable as anyone in the world because of their training. So for us, the believer, physical preparation and training isn't what we need because our combat, our warfare, isn't physical. But to defeat the strongholds that are erected against us by the wicked one, 
and against the knowledge of God, we must be able, we must be capable to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Look at verse number five. Casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. The ESV there says, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And sometimes that is more difficult than Navy SEAL training. To throw down the the fortresses of false religion. To pull down the strongholds of sin and selfishness. To defeat that which is contrary to God's worth and his word and his will and his way. We must bring every thought of our hearts and our minds into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Folks, in spiritual warfare, we must think right thoughts. We must meditate on Bible truth. We must obey Jesus Christ. Are you capable of that? In spiritual warfare, we must be capable. Are you able to say with David in Psalm 101, I will set no wicked thing before my eye? Are you capable of that? Are you able to do nothing with selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, esteeming one another better than yourself, looking out for the interest of others, having the mind of Christ? Are you capable of that? Are you on the lookout lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ? Colossians 2.8, are you capable of that? Are you being transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? Are you capable of that? Are you capable of Philippians 4.8, whatever things are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous, praiseworthy, think on these things, Are you capable of that? Not in the flesh. We are not capable of that in the flesh. Our weapons are mighty in God. They're dunitas, powerful, capable in God. And so the armor of God described in Ephesians 6 that we've studied this summer is, is what makes us capable. Wielding the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God, is how we are capable. Doing this all in prayer, Ephesians 6, is how we are capable. And this is really where the, the rubber meets the road in the Christian life because our circumstances, whether relational or social or financial or logistical, they're not physical problems that you can power through in the flesh. They're not material problems that you can just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and have strong will to, to victory but it is spiritual warfare against you that demands that we are powerful or capable in God. Perhaps one of the most recurring pastoral conversations I have with believers is this, Pastor, I I just, I don't feel like I have the strength to live the victorious Christian life. I fail and I fail and I fail and I fall and I fall. And Pastor, you don't understand, I am so weak Yeah, me too. Me too. 
if we are soldiering in the flesh. And so in these circumstances, we must think gospel thoughts. In these circumstances, we must walk by faith in the Spirit. And in these circumstances, we must obey God's Word. Verse number 6, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 6. And being ready, Paul is writing, he's saying, I'm ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. What's going on here? What, what does this mean? I would offer you there, number five, in spiritual warfare, we must be careful. Now, careful, what, what does that mean? Obviously, one must be careful in war, or, or they'll get hurt, injured. But careful in this way, a good soldier doesn't fire blindly into a crowd. A good soldier doesn't cut down civilians or those who are innocent, and neither should we. Many times we make hasty generalizations, and we paint with a broad brush when in reality the, the problem is narrow and the problem is specific or selective. And so we must be careful in our responses and patient to allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God to accomplish its work in your problem and in my problem and in our problems. Paul was prepared to punish disobedience. As an apostle with the authority he had, the problems in the Corinthian church needed confrontation of disobedience, but he was also careful to wait until the church's obedience was complete. Many times in spiritual warfare, I I just want to obliterate and annihilate the whole situation. I'm frustrated, I'm angry, I'm hurt. God, God, why don't you just strike, strike them down, the whole matter? Well, no, because perhaps there is a point of obedience yet to be revealed. Certainly disobedience needs to be addressed. But perhaps we're careful, patiently waiting for that obedience. And, and folks, life is full of trouble. You have trouble with your children, we have trouble with our coworkers. we have trouble with our church, church folks, we have trouble with our, ourselves, but in all of this conflict, in all of this crisis, in all of these, these matters, it's not a physical battle, it's a spiritual battle. It's not a social battle, it's a spiritual battle. We discipline and we train ourselves like the Navy SEALs to be capable to be obedient to Jesus Christ. And so carefully, prayerfully, Deliberately, we advance in our own discipline of obedience to Jesus Christ. Folks, these are secrets to spiritual warfare in the Christian life, as demonstrated by Paul before the Corinthians. And talk of these things this week in your home Bible fellowship. Meditate on these things, and may God give us the victory. Let's pray. God in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name the power of his name, the power of his shed blood, the power of his resurrection, asking that you will equip us, enable us with the ability and the the capability to arrest every thought of our minds and our hearts, to cast down the arguments against the truth of God's word, to walk in faith, to obey in every way, God, may we arise. May we arise as your church to be victorious over the wicked one. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.